Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 139 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan is the sound recordist. Sound Hi. Dylan's eating a sandwich. Classic Dylan. Don't eat it on mic. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> oh, no. Guys, we're the number nine podcast in Mongolia. Aren't we the number nine book podcast in yeah. Mongolia? Okay, let me phrase. <laughs> We're the number nine in the category of book podcasts in Mongolia with two whole downloads. Two whole downloads in <laughs> Mongolia. Who's going ham? Thank you for listening. Yeah, if you're listening to us, you're awesome. Uh, this week, we had an exciting thing happen. We had our baby shower and it was over Zoom. Whoa. Whoa. More like womb. <laughs> Sorry, that really got me. <laughs> And it was super fun. My mom um, led the Zoom. She's a Zoom expert, and she led the whole thing, and it was very sweet. She even had a practice Zoom call for people who weren't comfortable with Zoom. And we opened all these gifts, and we got a little bit of shame. Oh, yes? So my friend Kate gave me a book called Get a Life, Chloe Brown that she specifically said is for when I'm exhausted and just need a break from, you know, having a baby. And then we got a lot of baby books. So it's very exciting because our daughter now already has a to read list and I posted it on Instagram so you can check it out. But she her bookshelf is brimming. Nice. And it's dragon themed. The bookshelf is, looks like a dragon. I was going to say, yeah, you have, to, you have to clarify there. Not the whole to read list isn't just books about dragons. Only dragon books. Good point. Good point. That would be a really interesting way to raise your kid. Like, just for the first five years, be like, you're too small, but when you're big enough, we'll go see the dragons. She thinks the only animal on earth is a dragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to dress up Wallace and Jackson in dragon costumes. Oh, yeah. Did you guys have fun on the Zoom? Um, Toby, I noticed that you were polishing your surfboard. That's not what I was doing. But I, yeah, okay. It, there was an extended period of time where I was on mute uh, watching you guys unwrap presents. So I got a bit of chores done. Uh, yeah, but I, I had a great time. It was fun. It was, you know what it's like? It was like, um, the most relaxed way to attend a party ever because there was like a point where I was called upon to speak and I knew it was coming. So I had something like somewhat prepared and then I just sat back and like listened. It was fun. Yeah. It's like listening to a podcast, right? Me and Dylan just riffing on each other. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Andrew, did you have fun? I had a great time. I mean, my experience of the present part was a little less relaxed because I was in charge of recording who gave what. Oh, yeah. And Dylan is incredibly fast at opening presents. You're welcome. A fact that a lot of people made fun of him for on the Zoom. Uh, <laughs> so it was uh, hard to keep up with. It wasn't necessarily easy to type to the speed of Dylan opening gifts. That's one of my favorite things about Dylan. Like, that's one of the reasons I fell in love with him is, like, he's so <laughs> adorable with the present opening. Like, he will be already, like hasn't even put down the other present and already like looking at the next present. <laughs> and it actually was really helpful in the baby shower because normally like, I don't know if you guys have been to a baby shower, but normally it's all women and they just like ooh and ah over everything. And the opening presents can take like three hours. But Dylan was like, bam, bam, bam. Yeah, I appreciated <laughs> that speed. You just have to put on your podcaster producer hat. Yeah. Mm. Like, no, we need to wrap this up. Is that what you were doing or were you excited about the presents? Be honest. I was a little both. Okay. Hello, Jax. Dylan, um, you you were you were very obviously hyped. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cute. Uh, speaking of babies, I wanted to announce to our listeners that you know our baby is due in July. So in preparation, 
we're sort of making a plan for what could happen. So just so you know, Dylan and I will be on hiatus because, you know, we'll have a newborn child and I probably won't have time to read. But I hope to, you know, pop in if I can. But Toby and Andrew generously are going to take up the take up the mantle. What is it? Take up the reins? Slack. Take up the slack. Both of those. Yeah, I think all three. All of it. All of them. They're going to take over for the podcast and, and substitute and we'll have some surprise guests and it'll be fun. Well, we, we talked about it, Andrew and I talked about it, and we felt like the podcasting space didn't have enough straight white male representation in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we really wanted to fill that void. Specifically straight white men uh, judging art yeah. and culture and offering their opinions. Yeah. <laughs> Our first episode is going to be David Foster Wallace. It's just going to be you talking about <laughs> Pynchon like, for like two hours. <laughs> no, I'm excited. I'm excited to listen. It'll be fun. And along the same lines, we've had a few fans ask, when is Dylan going to finish Harry Potter book seven? Dylan mm-hmm. has said, quote, I have 200 pages left. I'll finish it when I finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what a non-encouraging quote. <laughs> I really thought that was leading to like, and yeah. he's committed to finishing it before we go on. Yeah, you fooled me. He did tell me that our last minisode, so like the last one in June, is going to be Dylan finishes Harry Potter book seven, the end of Dylan's cupboard under the stairs. Dylan cleans out the cupboard. I have to read 200 pages by June? Oh my gosh. So if if uh, if the baby comes before the due date, you guys will never hear Dylan's final <laughs> broom cupboard under the stairs. <laughs> He'll never finish. 200 pages. It's like, I... <sighs> 200 exciting 200 pages. 200 pages of a Harry Potter book is yeah. a first half of the first half of your afternoon. Come on, dude. <laughs> can't hear you over the sandwich (laughs) (laughs) i i don't want to i don't want to backtrack too much uh but i do want to reassure listeners um we i joked about that like me and andrew being straight white dudes we are going to try and have guests on um that are a little bit more diverse than me and andrew um we're not not just going to be me and andrew going back and forth um we're going to try and preserve kind of the spirit of the show so don't be too bummed out and we're going to have Bailey back when she's ready. So this is not like a permanent change. Um, but we, yeah, we're excited to to support Bailey and Dylan in this, in this time. Oh, thank you. Yeah. What, what Toby said, <laughs> Andrew, you sound so sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really excited. I just, I'm going to miss Bailey, but it's, uh, it's gotta be this way because it would be insane to keep up this workload during this time of your lives. Imagine if you were like, okay, your baby's born and I choose Lee Miserab. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. So that's the plan. That's the maternity leave plan, I guess you could say. And I just, I'm feeling the love after this weekend, after the Zoom baby shower. I, f- I forgot about the worldwide pandemic for two whole days. So that was very exciting. So this week on the podcast, Toby had a book chosen at random from his shelf to read. Toby, what book did you read? Oh, I had the grade school primer, The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. Tommy P. Cry, cry, cry. And uh, unless I'm mistaken, Andrew, did you finish this one? Did you make it through? I did. I read it. Yeah, I finished it right before we recorded, which is pretty wild for a 138-page book that I knew I was going to read for four weeks. But, (laughs) you know, I make the task fit the time, and I did finish the book. I'm dying to hear your guys' review because all I hear is that this is a shall we say, difficult book? So tell us about mm. it. Toby, what's the logline for this book? <laughs> it's certainly not one line, but I'll give you the idea of the book. 
The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon tells the story of Edipa Moss, a Californian housewife plagued by existential dread, as she attempts to fulfill her role as executrix of her billionaire ex-lover's will. Edipa crisscrosses the Golden State and is quickly drawn into a deeply complex mystery concerning an elusive secret society that appears to span the globe. Surreal, hallucinatory, paranoid, hilarious, and very often beyond my comprehension, The <laughs> Crying of Lot 49 is one of the original acid trips of literature. Andrew, would you agree with that? Yeah. No, I especially agree with the over my head part. <laughs> <laughs> So one of my first impressions of the book um, is that it is one of those things that has been imitated so many times that it's kind of hard to remind yourself that this is the source material. I have read lesser versions of this book before. So every once in a while, I caught myself thinking like, oh, I know this trick or I know this stylistic choice. But I had to remind myself that Pynchon kind of originated a lot of this stuff. My second impression is that this will break your brain. Um, (laughs) It's deeply, deeply layered with symbolism in a way that's really difficult to experience. In a normal book, I feel like you're working with like maybe one or two themes and a couple established pieces of symbolism and they're kind of used over and over and elaborated on and you're like, okay, I can understand this and it helps you experience the book and what the author is saying. With Pynchon and the Crying of Lot 49, within the first 20 pages, he's established a whole set of kind of a symbology and a theme and then he subverts it and builds a deeper thing below that and he's referencing his own made-up mythology and his own symbolism it refracts in on itself again and again endlessly to where it felt like a riddle that was unsolvable because i was unable to hold it all in my brain at once does that make sense that makes a lot of sense from this guy over here. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically like the experience of reading it is is like that. But, you know, I went back and forth on it. Like there were times when I would apply myself and try and figure out what's going on. And I would almost always have this experience where I could I could get to one level and then I could get to one level below that. And then we'd go three levels deep and I'd be really struggling and then either I would like get frustrated and quit reading for the night or I would just kind of give up and experience the book as it went along. And I can't really tell what the intention of Pynchon is. I can't tell if I'm supposed to figure it all out as I go or if maybe I'm supposed to read the book three or four times or if it is just supposed to be like, let it go, experience it as it goes. I don't know that I like those kinds of books. I hate those kinds of movies, like Mm -hmm. where I question, like, does the author even know what his intention is? And who makes the meaning? Is it the author or the reader? And if it's the reader, then I feel like it should be more understandable, or at least maybe ambiguous, but easier to interpret. I don't know. That sounds frustrating to me. It was. <laughs> so I've, I've read Inherent Vice by him, which I don't really claim to understand either. But that one was a little bit more plot driven, a little bit more leaning on the aspects of this that I found quite enjoyable, which is um, there's a lot of really funny stuff. His writing is very strong and very unique. He's got a super interesting voice that he leans on very heavily. He's obviously a very smart person and there's some really funny stuff in there. So when I managed to let it wash over me, I did enjoy the prose itself. Um, And I have here in my notes (laughs) that I definitely felt like that Steve Rogers meme or the Captain America meme where like every once in a while I'd be like, oh, 
I understood that reference. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was like my experience for most of this book, because there's a lot of like references to like European history, both real and invented, and theatrical history, both real and invented. And that's another confusing thing about the book is he kind of blends stuff he's made up with stuff that seems real to me. Um, so that was very confusing. This book is like that experience that I've had in art museums or contemporary art museums sometimes where I'll like be confronted with a piece of art and then I'll be kind of like challenged by it. And then I'll have that moment where I step back and I'll be like, is this even good? Am I like, tr- <laughs> am I trying to enjoy this too hard? But then I can be like, oh, I think it is good. Oh man, I remember museums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that definitely tracks with me. I I get into it in a little bit, but I had to sort of go cross medium with this between reading it and listening. And I had a moment where I like sort of zoned out while listening because I was trying to like do the dishes or something. And I truly had no idea what was going on, (laughs) what city we were in, who Oedipo was talking to. And I had to like go back like 15 minutes in the thing. And I ended up just going back to um, uh, reading only the copy because any sort of like loss of diligence resulted in me not knowing what was going on. Yeah, I agree with that. I think a touchstone that people might be more familiar with is kind of Hunter S. Thompson-y, like bizarre characters wandering on and off stage. And there's a lot of like paranoia. Um, She kind of uh, stumbles on this secret society that may or may not exist. It has secret symbols. It has to do with a secret post office that may or may not exist and that free thinkers or undesirables of America and the world may be using to communicate with each other. Um, So I think that gives you a bit of the flavor of the world and the plot of the book, but really it's very meandering. Although I will say the the kind of mystery and the unraveling was enough of a hook for me to keep me interested. And he really creates that paranoia and that air of menace and mystery about the society quite well. I had a, a tough time with this book. Um, I definitely went back and forth on it. I think for most of it, I was thinking it was going to be a three just because, you know, our reviews are based on reading experience and how much we personally enjoyed it. I think literary merit would be a different rating. You know, personally, I wasn't like loving the experience because I felt like at points it was so intentionally dense as to be crazy frustrating. But then I really did feel like toward the end, he kind of clarified things a little bit. Like, I don't really want to come too clean about what his whole message is, because that's kind of the payoff of the whole book. Um, and I don't, well, I won't claim to really understand it entirely. But I do think, and I'm curious to see if you felt this way, Andrew, that like in the last like 20 pages of the book, I was like clearly talking about America. And it was just much more clear to me and less laden with really obscure references to like Jacobean plays. <laughs> so I, I was like, okay, I did feel like there was a grace note there at the end that I was let in a little bit more. That bumped it up for me, and I, I ended up giving it four stars. Oh, wow. I just want to go on at one second rant and say, I really hate it when people are like, I think I should rate it more because of literary merit, even though I didn't understand. Like, I'm dumb. <laughs> I don't know if you're saying that, Toby, but I just feel that if people can't understand it, then you don't just assume that it's good. Like, he could just be making stuff up and throwing it at a wall. That's what I feel. I definitely got the impression that, I don't know, it was like a video game that was too difficult for me to play, but I could understand how some people would get joy out of playing it. It seemed like if I really wanted to drill down and dissect it piece by piece, that would probably be a rewarding experience. I just didn't really care to. It seems like a book that a bunch of guys from my college would want to explain to me. Yes, I (laughs) guarantee you that, that there's a certain annoying kind of person that loves this book. 
All right, Andrew, Andrew, let's hear your review. I was just thinking back to some people who, in like my freshman year of college, talked about how their favorite book was Gravity's Rainbow. And I was like, yeah, you at 17 really enjoyed Gravity's <laughs> Rainbow, huh? <laughs> so my experience was really similar. I picked up a copy of the book because someone had left it at my old work uh, in the Lost and Found for like months. So I grabbed it, tried to read the first 10 pages, couldn't make hide or hair of it, put it away, never thought of it again. But I do agree with you, Toby, that when it like hits a rhythm or when I was engaged with it, it actually is really compelling and really does drive you forward, which was what was sort of frustrating for me. My copy, at least, is only 138 pages, but I would go through like what felt like hours of reading uh, <laughs> without being able to click into it and then magically sort of get it every once in a while. Yeah. I'm uh, maybe a little more close to Bailey's on, view of it on that, where I only rated it three stars because I found it difficult, but I did find a lot of the things you're talking about, and I feel like it was a valuable thing to read, and a book I might actually revisit later, because I do feel like part of the fun of it is not necessarily trying to understand it yeah. because I think that's actually when it clicked in um, when I let myself not get mad at myself for not understanding it and just sort of plowed through it became kind of fun I mean it's full of weird things like the names are bizarre yeah. like the billionaire who died is named Pearson in Verity Edipa Moss her she's married to Mucho Moss <laughs> it's full of these like really exciting and weird things that I feel like if you weren't burdened with trying to like understand would be a lot of fun <laughs> um i can't go i think above a three just because it was at times so frustrating but i would be open to, to checking out again though i will get a new copy of it or read it digitally somehow because the copy i have i think has like black mold in it it was making my hands itch and like flake <laughs> oh, no. which is why i tried to listen to it <laughs> um but then i was just, i couldn't follow the listening as well so i uh, i put on a pair of gloves put on a <laughs> pair of reading glasses and then plowed through i, I mean i think every copy comes straight from the publisher coated in liquid LSD, so. Maybe that's what it is. And it's a really old copy, the one I have, so maybe it, like, turned somehow. <laughs> turned. <laughs> turned. I think Thomas Pynchon would love the idea of, like, one of his <laughs> books being infested with black mold that, like, screwed with your reading experience. Well... This has been a journey. Listeners, be careful of your books that might turn. But in this case, The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon, three to four stars. Andrew, do you have any facts? Yes, I do. Though, before I go into this, I will add this caveat. Not a lot is known about Thomas Pynchon, and what people claim they know is not always confirmed to be correct. What is he, famously reclusive or something? Yeah, he's famously reclusive, and curious people have tried to figure out things about him for years, leading to speculation, misinformation, and sort of in honor of the author's wishes, I'm going to try to keep this brief and based mostly in sort of fun facts that are confirmable and definitely true and that he was involved in, because it feels kind of dirty to me to try to do a bunch of web sleuthing to figure out things about a guy who actively doesn't want that. Aww. What if he's just into baking and, like, the chiefs? Wait till you get to the facts. All right, all right. Well, I'm a little bummed, though, because the way you were kind of introducing that, it's like very little is known about him yeah. until now. <laughs> I, I do want to say, Andrew, I want to congratulate you for managing to tease your facts right before you said your facts this time. There you go. I love teasing. Though my favorite fact about Thomas Pynchon is his middle name. Thomas Ruggles Pynchon <laughs> Jr. Yep. Was born on May 8th, 1937 in Glen Cove, New York, which is on Long Island, to Thomas Ruggles Pynchon Sr. <laughs> and Catherine Francis Bennett. <laughs> he attended Oyster Bay High School, graduating at 16 years old, and then attended Cornell, where he began a degree in mechanical physics. He ended up leaving Cornell for a two-year stretch to serve in the Navy, which is where famously one of the only pictures of him comes from. Um, 
before returning to complete a degree in English. One of his teachers there was Vladimir Damikov, who said he has no memory of him. (laughs) Though Nabokov's wife, who actually graded a lot of the papers, claims to remember his distinctive handwriting. After college, he began working for Boeing in Seattle as a technical writer, some of which feeds into Crying of Lot 49 and a lot of his other work. He left in late 1962, and in 1963, his first novel, V, period, uh, was published, winning several awards and being a finalist for the National Book Award. Um, And then sort of the mystery descends. He starts not wanting things known about him. He sort of gets involved with um, re-surgence of the beat culture and some of the counterculture hippie movement, but he actually sort of is on record in the few things that he's on record on as not really going full hog into it and like sort of having misgivings about it, which is interesting that this book feels like such a symbol of that sort of culture because he seems to be have some hesitation. It's suspected for a time. It's actually confirmed that he lived in Manhattan Beach, California uh, for a while. And while he was there, he wrote a bunch of different things, but that included The Crying of Lot 49, which was his second novel and published in 1966. In 1973, his third novel, Gravity's Rainbow, commonly thought of as his masterpiece and a quintessential American novel of the post-World War II era was published. It won the National Book Award, though the award was actually shared that year with a collection of short stories uh, called Crown of Feathers by Isaac Singer, and it was unanimously selected by the awarding panel to win the Pulitzer Prize. However, it was vetoed by the board of the Pulitzer Awarding Committee for being, quote, overwritten, turgid, and unreadable. What? No award was given that year. Wait, who? Wait, I don't understand the difference between who voted unanimously to do it and who vetoed it. So here's the thing. The Pulitzer Awards have an overall board that controls it. But each year, the awards are actually selected by a committee of people, uh, usually other artists or reviewers, prominent scholars that are chosen specifically to award it. And they are different every year. And so that group unanimously was like, Gravity's Rainbow, you get the win. And then the board was like, no, we don't like this book. (laughs) So I think history has sort of vindicated the uh, guest panel that unanimously picked the book Mm. versus the people who Mm -hmm. sort of tried to trash it. But, you know, to each their own. He continues to publish new work, most recently Bleeding Edge in 2013. He married Melanie Jackson, his literary agent, and they have one son together whose name is Jackson. And the rest is just fun stuff taken from Wikipedia and other sources. Thomas Pynchon voiced himself in two episodes of The Simpsons. Yeah. He edited some of his own lines and refused to say a disparaging line about Homer Simpson because, quote, Homer is my role model and I can't speak ill of him. (laughs) He said that in a hand-edited faxed letter to them, and then he recorded it. But it is actually his voice. Uh, Should you want to seek these out, the episodes are titled Diatribe of a Mad Housewife and All's Fair in Oven War. (laughs) His character appears uh, wearing a paper bag with a question mark on it. In college, he wrote a chunk of a science fiction musical with Kirkpatrick Sale, who's an academic and separatist who lives in uh, Vermont um, (laughs) called Minstrel Island in which IBM controls the world, which actually sort of feels like a forebearer for some of his other novels. Um, An asteroid is named after him. Radiohead, the band named their fan website W-A-S-T-E or Waste, which is the name of the secret postal service operating in Crying of Lot 49. Italian author Tommaso Pinchio made his pseudonym after Thomas Pynchon, which is hilarious to me. (laughs) It's so obvious. (laughs) I really like J.D. Salinger, so I'll be a J.D. Salingerino or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, Salingerino. And he has lived in New York City now for many years. And don't seek him out. Let him be alone. That's what he wants. We wouldn't even know if we found him, right? We'd just be looking for a guy with a paper bag on his head. It's true. If you're looking for a guy with a paper bag on his head, it's probably not actually him. Yeah, you got you to gotta make sure it has the question mark on it. Although, have you heard about the inherent vice 
theory thing. That he appears in the movie? Yeah, there's the theory that what? he appears in the movie in Heron Vice when they're going through the um, sanatorium, that he's like one of the guys sitting up front. People involved in the project have said he's in it, but no one has confirmed it. Fair. All right, well, great facts, Andrew. I feel like I learned a lot and yet nothing at all, which is just what he would want. <laughs> <laughs> we think. We think. All right, so this week I had a book chosen at random from my shelf. It was I Know This Much Is True by Wally Lamb. Bah, bah, bah. It's a lamb. <laughs> in so many ways, it's like the complete opposite of the Thomas Pynchon book in that it's like very long um, and easily, there's a very easy log line, but yet there's so much more depth to it and meaning. And it seems kind of like the opposite of your book. <laughs> so this book, which I didn't realize until I picked it off my shelf, is 900 pages. Woof. Woof. So it's not a quick read, but it is one where when you're reading it, you're engrossed in it and it doesn't feel like 900 pages. It's very well written. But I was surprised because the cover says number one New York Times bestseller. And I associate it with my mom reading it in the 90s and saying it was really good. So I guess I just didn't think of it as this big of like a saga, but it is. Mm. It's like a family drama saga. The Easiest logline, you could say, is a troubled man sets out to free his schizophrenic twin brother from prison. That's just what it's about. It's so funny because my book doesn't even say on the back what's it, what it's about. It just has a bunch of quotes about how great it is. And all uh -huh. I knew is it was about twin boys. And it was like, oh, no, okay. It's very easy to say what this book is about. I just have to say, I hate it when editions of books do that. I don't mind if you only give me like a log line like Bailey just read, but if I'm in the bookstore, like I want, I want a log line. Like I want something. I don't want rave reviews. Like I just, yeah. I want like something. If, otherwise I'm just not going to buy the book. Oprah's telling you to read it. Is that not enough? <laughs> no. And, and th this is like pretty high praise too. It says an inspiring, darkly comic tale of redemption, a late 20th century Les Miserables. What? Whoa. <laughs> I know this much is true. I know this much is true. It's a delight. <laughs> so this is the first line. On the afternoon of October 12th, 1990, my twin brother Thomas entered the Three Rivers, Connecticut Public Library, retreated to one of the rear study carols, and prayed to God that the sacrifice he was about to commit would be deemed acceptable. So it pulls you in from the beginning. Yeah. That's yeah. intriguing. I kind of want to tell you what the sacrifice is. Go for it. It only happens two sentences later. His brother is, as I said, deeply troubled, schizophrenic, and his schizophrenia revolves around like religious symbolism and Catholicism. And so he cuts off his one of his hands as a way Ooh. of like, what is it? Like cut off the the sinner's hand or what is, what is uh, the Bible line? The thief's hand? It's no. I think if, if thy hand offend you, yes, remove yes. it or something like that. Yes, that's it. Thanks, Sunday school. There you go. So that's the beginning of the book. Uh, that's page one of 900. And it just goes really deep into the experience of the twin who doesn't have schizophrenia, but who is still extremely troubled. I would say he suffers from arrogance and entitlement and an inability to take responsibility for himself and be humble, 
which becomes a theme of the book. So it's strange because it's like, this book shouldn't be good because it's 900 pages about this jerk of a man. But it's great. Mm. Like, it, it really pulls you in. The characters are so engaging. There's a lot of mysteries that do end up having answers in the end. So there's a satisfaction at the end. But there's enough mystery to pull you along. And it does switch between time periods. So you get a sense of really this whole family's whole history. Some of the motifs I'm still trying to understand, like what he was trying to say, like, rabbits keep showing up and a lot of the people in this family something goes wrong with one of their hands and i'm like maybe that's a biblical thing that i don't know about Mm. but one of the themes that i found the most interesting and connected with andrew this is not about you okay yeah sure (laughs) but the theme of like am i my brother's keeper am i responsible for this person in my family who's like just causing so much hurt and this is obviously not about Andrew. Um, so I just had one quote to show that that theme that I really thought was well done. The thing is, I think I finally get it, you know? I finally get it. This is Dominic speaking, the, the main character. That he's my curse, my anchor. That I'm going to tread water for the rest of my whole life. That he is my whole life. I'm just going to tread water, just breathe, and that's it. I'm never going to get away from him, never. I don't know. There's just so much that comes up when they're like... You know, there's so much pressure that he experiences. Like, you have to hang out with your brother. He has it so hard. And you have to have him, like, be your college roommate and join your, you know, join your workplace and all of this. And he just feels like, why do I have to do that? Why am I tied to this man? And at the same time, he truly loves him and he hates that to see him suffer. It's I just found that very intriguing. Yeah, this book sounds compelling as heck. I actually think you would really like it, Toby. It really reminded me of A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara in that... It's long, but it's beautifully written. The characterization is great. And it's sad, but you're still glad you read it. So all of that said, I was about to give it five stars. But then, and this I think is a matter of taste, in the last third, the last 300 of 900 pages, it switches format where instead of just being more of a narrative from Dominic's perspective, it switches between him and him reading a diary of his grandfather. And that just I just kind of lost the rhythm a little bit. And it ends up coming all together. But it, I don't know what it felt almost like the book wasn't edited well, like maybe that should have been in there from the beginning because it just felt tacked on at the end. So ultimately, I'm giving it four stars just because that one part took me out of it. But I really recommend it. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing the show on HBO. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to keep it on my shelf because, like I said, I was inspired because it was on my mom's shelf. So maybe someday my daughter will read it. Um, but Andrew, do you have any facts on Wally Lamb? Oh, boy, do I? <laughs> what, let me guess. He's a secretive recluse who's only appeared on The Simpsons with an exclamation mark on the paper bag on his head. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he seems like a cool dude. Um, okay. Wally Lamb was born on October 17th, 1950 in Norwich, Connecticut, the state he lives in to this day. He grew up in a working class family and didn't start writing until later in his life. I peppered in throughout these facts uh, some stuff from an interview with Daniel Ford on a, a website called writersbone.com. This is Wally Lamb talking about his origins in writing. When I was a kid, I wasn't particularly interested in writing or reading, but I loved to draw. My specialties were cartoons and comic books. It was only in retrospect that I realized I was preparing myself for a life as a writer with this hobby. I began writing fiction in earnest the summer I was 30. It was also the summer I became a first-time dad, so for me the two are intertwined. Um, A little bit more about his childhood. Uh, The interviewer asks, 
As a Connecticut boy myself, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about how growing up in Connecticut influenced your early writing and subsequent career. This is Wally Lamb. My hometown, Norwich, housed the largest state hospital for the mentally ill in Connecticut. The hospital campus both scared and fascinated me when I was a boy. And I'm from eastern Connecticut, which afforded me a different upbringing than if I'd grown up in western part of the state. We root for the Red Sox, not the Yankees. We drop our R's like Bostonians. I've quipped that western Connecticut is pate, and eastern Connecticut is liverwurst. My family was largely working class, as are most of my characters. After graduating high school, he attended the University of Connecticut, getting a BA and an MA in education. He later went to left Connecticut, which I, I don't know how I feel about, um, <laughs> to attend the Vermont College of Fine Arts to get his MFA in writing. But he worked for a te- as a teacher for many years at, at the high school he attended, which was called the, the Norwich Free Academy, uh, teaching English and writing. Uh, his first novel was She's Come Undone, uh, which was published in 1992, which was met with some reasonable success. It was like a New York Times notable book, but it really blew up in prominence later because it was the fourth book ever selected for Oprah's Book Club in 1997, five years after it was published. The interviewer asks Wally Lamb, She's Come Undone, and I Know This Much Is True, were bestsellers featured on Oprah's Book Club and put you on the map as a writer. What were those early experiences like, and how did they shape your mindset and career going forward? Wally answers. She's Come Undone was picked by Oprah in 1997, five years after its publication, and I know this much is true in 1998, right after I finished the novel. It was like a pair of rides on a really cool roller coaster. A little scary, but mostly fun. But then the ride was over, and it was time to go back and work on a new novel. The success of those first two novels intimidated me for a while. I was afraid to write because I was afraid to fail. My insecurity kept suggesting that I was a fake, and now everyone would find out. I had to let go of my focus on my readers' reactions and rededicate myself to the reason why I started writing fiction in the first place, to discover and explore my own truths honestly and humbly. The interviewer asks, what does your writing process look like? I know we like to find out about that. Uh, Do you outline, listen to music? Wally answers. I sometimes envy writers who can outline their stories and then write towards some preconceived ending. That seems like it would be a much more efficient way to write a novel than the way I do it, which is to write in a character's voice and allow that character to take me into a story and reveal himself or herself a little at a time. The plot evolves from what the character reveals, and I have no idea when I begin where the story will take me. For instance, when I wrote my second novel, I Know This Much Is True, I began with the angry voice of a character named Dominic. I had no idea that he had a brother, much less an identical twin, or that that twin's mental illness would circumscribe his own life into adulthood. So I thought that was really interesting that he started writing this book before even knowing that there was a twin involved, because it seems like this book couldn't exist without that. Yeah. Uh, And finally, uh, Lamb has spent years working in York Correctional Institute, which is Connecticut's only women's prison, teaching writing classes to the inmates there. This work has spawned three collections of the prisoner's work, uh, the most recent of which was published in 2019. The first collection caused a storm resulting in Connecticut attempting to cancel the program, destroy the inmates' writings, and suing the inmates for the cost of their total incarceration, which they calculated as $117 a day for the length of their sentence. What? What? Yeah. This naturally uh, caused some backlash, and under public pressure from both 60 Minutes, uh, who did a story on it, and um, Pan America, who awarded one of the women, they settled the lawsuit and uh, reinstated the program. I I don't think it ever actually technically went all the way out of existence, but they were about to pull the plug, and it continues to this day. And Wally Lamb lives in Connecticut with his wife and three sons. Aw, I love those facts. Very good. Yeah, good facts, Andrew. Andrew, do you have (laughs) a game for us? I know this much is true. Andrew has a game. Ooh. Oh, I do. The game this week is our traditional format, is something one thing or another thing. (laughs) This week it's called Pinch Me or Punch Me. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We'll be giving you a name, a character name. That character is either a character in a Thomas Pynchon novel Mm. or short story, 
or a wrestler from the now defunct Assault Championship Wrestling Federation, uh, which was based in Connecticut. So a Connecticut <laughs> Independent Wrestling League. Assault Assault Championship is such a direct description of what's happening. <laughs> Yeah, Assault Championship Wrestling. It was uh, founded in 2000 and defunct in 2004, uh, based in Waterbury, Connecticut. Mm. And this is going to be hard, you guys. <laughs> so, do we just call out "pinch me" or "punch me," or do is it turn-based? That's a great question. I'm going to reinstitute as much as Toby uh... hates it the system where. <laughs> The first one is going to be a buzz in and you will answer pinch me or punch me. Pinch me being a pinch in character, punch me being a wrestler. Um, but then after that, we're just going to alternate turns because I don't want to deal with the buzzing in. Does that sound okay? Sure. Fair enough. I have a bunch here and the list just kept going. This could have been an hour long game because it was a, <laughs> a gosh darn gold mine. Um, all right. So for this first one, you can buzz in. Zepho Bark. Buzz. Pinch me. Sorry. For Zepho Bark? Yeah. I... I was distracted because I couldn't read my own handwriting. <laughs> Bailey said it first. Yeah. So Bailey gets to answer. Pinch me. Oh, come on. <laughs> that is correct. Zeppo oh, oh, Bark is from Mason and Dixon <laughs> by Thomas Pynchon. Well, Toby, you get to go first on this one. Guaranteed. DC Dillinger. DC Dillinger. That'll be a punch me. That is correct, Toby. Well done. DC Dillinger was a fighter for the Assault Championship Wrestling. Um, Pig Bodine. This is for you, Bailey. Pig Bodine. I'm going to say pinch me. That is also correct. This might be easier than I thought. Uh, Pig Bodine is a character from Lowlands, which is a short story by Thomas Pynchon. Meatball Mulligan. Pinch me. That is also correct. Meatball Mulligan Ooh. is a character from Entropy, a short story by Thomas Pynchon. You guys have not gotten a single one incorrect. Julio De Niro. Um, <laughs> hmm. It doesn't really sound like a wrestler, so I'm going to say pinch me. That is incorrect, no! Bailey. Julio De Niro <laughs> is a wrestler in the Assault Championship Wrestling League. And Robert De Niro's son. <laughs> and Robert De Niro's big boy son. <laughs> Dr. Reginald Heresy. Dr. Reginald Heresy. That sounds so much like a pinching character. I'm going to have to go punch me. What a wise choice you made. Mm -hmm. He is a wrestler for the Assault Championship Wrestling mm -hmm. League. Yes. Perhaps the most pinching sounding character I've ever heard. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. I hope you're ready to be assaulted by Dr. Reginald. Heresy. <laughs> Benny Profane. Benny Profane. <laughs> oh, this is hard. Uh, I'm going to say punch me. That is, again, incorrect, ah! Bailey. Benny Profane is a character from V by Thomas Pynchon. I told you this is hard. You guys got did well in the beginning, but it's not uh, easy. Sorry, I haven't gotten one wrong yet. Yeah, I'm just the one messing up. That's fair. Tiger Mulligan. Tiger Mulligan. Uh, pinch me. That is incorrect. No. <laughs> Tiger Mulligan was a wrestler. So there's a Tiger Mulligan who's a wrestler and a Meatball Mulligan who's a Pynchon character. Let the record show. <laughs> What's the score? What's the score? <laughs> Toby is only up three to two, Bailey. Okay. Because you went first. You've gotten two wrong. He's gotten one wrong. Okay. Scotty Charisma. Ooh. Uh, see, it's like, I want to say punch me, but maybe that's too obvious. So I'm going to say pinch me. You've hoisted yourself on your own batard yeah. there. He was a wrestler. Uh, definitely a wrestler. The Reverend Wilkes Cherry Coke. <laughs> the Reverend Wilkes Cherry Coke, pinch me. That's correct. And sorry, it's actually Wix Cherry Coke. I, I said it wrong. Would that have changed your answer, Toby? Oh, yeah, 
<laughs> okay, so it's incorrect then, Toby. No, no, no. <laughs> Chris Candido. Candido. Um, punch me. That is correct, Bailey. Okay. Yes. Good one, Bailey. Toby, if you get this one correct, you put yourself into a great position to win next turn. Thanks. No pressure. Scarsdale vibe. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Scarsdale vibe? Scarsdale's pretty close to Connecticut. It also is pretty close to where Thomas Pynchon grew up. Punch me. Punch me? Oh, Toby. That is incorrect. Scarsdale Vibe is a character from Against the Day by Thomas Pynchon. Oh, I abandoned reading that book, too. Bailey, you could put yourself in a great position to steal away the game. Yeah. If you get this one correct. Debonair Cruz. Ooh. I'm going to say pinch me. That's incorrect. All right, I'm going to call it here. Toby, if you get this correct, you win the game. Toby, if you get this correct, you win the game. That sounds like a Thomas Pynchon character. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we are. Just incredible. Oh, no. Just incredible. I'm going to have to go punch me. That is correct, Toby. Congratulations, Justin Credible, wrestler for the Assault Championship Wrestling. Uh, The only other one I had on this list was Tyrone Slothrop. (laughs) What would you have said that was? I would have said pinch me. That's pinch me. Yeah. That's from Gravity's Rainbow and also Teddy Bloat. Ooh, I would say uh, pinch say me again. Pinch me. That's also from Gravity's Rainbow. I wasn't sure if you'd read Gravity's Rainbow, so I held off on, on throwing those in. Guys, that was a great game. That Back and forth. You guys kept game. it close. Well, well done. Well done, Toby. Um, I will say the only, the reason I was so sure about Just Incredible is I was like, I, I all of Thomas Pynchon's puns, and there are many of them, are much more obscure than that. It's too direct of a pun. Too basic. In retrospect, that one is pretty obviously not a pension one, but it's pretty great it's as pretty, a name for a wrestler. <laughs> oh, it's great. awesome. You know what? It's just incredible. Oh, I, I thought of this the whole time. Pinch me. I'm dreaming. I won the game. <laughs> Punch me. I hate this. No, just kidding. <laughs> All right. So great game, Andrew. Dylan, now is a time on the podcast where you choose books at random from our shelves it is the choosing. The choosing. The choosing of lot forty-three. Actually, it's the choosing, Toby, of number sixty for you. Sharp teeth by Toby Barlow. Toby by Toby. Oh, time for some Toby on Toby action. I don't remember what this book is about. It has a dog on it. It's the sequel to White Teeth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for a second I was like, I already read White Teeth. All right, Sharp Teeth by Toby Barlow. I'll have to look it up. All right. A ringing endorsement. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what's my book? Well, even though it failed the uh, book club vote, you got number 28, Educated by Tara Westover. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) That's right, listeners. You didn't want to hear us talk about it, but too bad. (laughs) Too bad. It's been chosen. You can't deny the random number generator. (laughs) Once it's been chosen, you can't (laughs) unchosen. Okay, awesome. So that means next week we have our mini-sode, which is baby shower gifts for literary parents, which should be fun. And then in two weeks, I have Educated by Tara Westover, finally choosened. And Andrew has his book club pick, Circe by Madeline Miller. And I'm going to try to read that one too, Andrew. And I'm actually going to try to read Educated because Jillian has a copy of that. It's not formally on my to-read list, but we do have a copy in the house. There you go. And I've already read both of those books, so I'm all set. Well, that's just incredible, Toby. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. 
Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the to read list podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the to read list podcast and on Twitter at to read list pod. If you like what you heard here, please go to iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and give us a rating and a review. It really does help us uh, expand our footprint and get us on sort of tracking lists and helps us get promoted for all kinds of technical reasons. But you don't have to worry about that part. You just have to worry about putting those five stars in there and, uh, you know, saying something nice like, I think uh, Andrew's pretty cool. Yes, Elmo, please rate us. Um, and uh, and uh, if you enjoy this podcast, one of the best things you can do to help us out is uh, if you know someone in your life who enjoys books, enjoys reading, tell them about us. Tell them about the podcast. Um, you can tell them that we fully understand The Crying of Lot 49, that this episode <laughs> contains a full in detail explanation of it. And by the time they finish the episode and figure out they've been tricked, it's too late. They like it too now. And we got them. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. Wait, guys, do you know how you say books in Mongolian? How? Nom. Nom? Nom, nom, nom. nom. nom.